I'm Maria Long, Research and Content Director for the Standards Board for Alternative Investments, or SBAI. Thank you for joining us on our podcast, A Conversation on Carbon. At the SBAI, we've run panel events both physically and virtually since our inception in 2008, and our podcasts now bring you conversations with senior industry leaders on a variety of topical issues. Before we jump into today's conversation, let me quickly tell you a little about the SBAI. We are a global active alliance of asset managers and investors dedicated to advancing responsible practice, partnership and knowledge. Our alternative investment standards are supported by over 150 asset managers and over 90 institutional investors. We run several working groups, including one on responsible investment, alongside our regulatory engagement and events. To find out more, visit sbai.org or contact us at info at sbai.org. Earlier I caught up with Sarah Razenpa, Director and Head of Responsible Investment at Unigestion, and Rob Sachs, Head of Business Development at Whitebox Advisors. We discussed some of the challenges and potential solutions for carbon footprinting, the complexities of ESG data, and onward reporting to allocators. So firstly, welcome to you both for joining our second podcast, A Conversation on Carbon. Let's start with some introductions to put some context for the discussion. My name is Sarah Razenpa and I'm the Head of Responsible Investment at Unigestion SA. Unigestion is a boutique asset management headquartered in Switzerland. We have different offices across the world. We have three main investment lines, so listed equities, private equities and multi-asset investments. I'm Rob Sachs from White Box Advisors. We are a credit multi-strategy firm that creates solutions across the credit spectrum with distinct businesses across CLOs, hedge funds, co-investments, drawdown vehicles. My role within the team is to sit on the ESG committee and co-chair it with Paul Roos, our partner. My role overall is business development titled as investor relations. We house $5.7 billion of assets through offices throughout the globe. So before we dive in, something that we say quite often here at the SBI is that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to anything. A lot depends on factors such as size, location, maturity, strategy, etc. So before we touch on topics such as carbon footprinting, engagement and reporting, perhaps we can take a minute to hear your views on how approaches can be different and might need to be tailored. I think the most important part is the SG. It has to align with what your firm's philosophy and ultimate goals are. And you have to stay within the context of what you're able to provide. So based on different targets of AUM, staffing, I know it's obvious, but with base case scenarios of building blocks is the most important. The challenge we all find is we want to satiate the investor needs. This is one of the few times that both the investment manager and the investor are looking at each other for answers. So understanding that dynamic, you then understand what you're qualified to execute on, and that is the key part. So if you put all this together, it's base case and ultimately what's your measurement for execution. 
but within the context of where your firm is. I agree with all Rob said, the size of the company actually, what kind of resources you can associate with it. It's extremely important because it's uh, both quantitative and qualitative. The quantitative part is about data, but data is uh, not coming as easy as you would think. It's what you have to take in, what you have to clean, then you have to decide how to use it. So that takes a lot of resources on the other side. The qualitative aspect, analyzing what you're receiving, analyzing where you want to go, it takes a lot of resources as well. There are different kind of categories from what we have seen. There are people who want to do the minimum mandatory requirements, and that's what their size allows them to do. And there are some that do more and more, and they want to basically work only on sustainability. So the levels of expectations are different. Let's jump into the main part of the conversation and we'll start with carbon footprinting. It's a topic we're being asked a lot about at the moment and something that's being discussed in our Responsible Investment Working Group. But what does it mean to each of you and what have been your observations? Yes, so uh, carbon footprint is actually something that we have looked at for all of the different asset classes on the back of becoming a supporter of uh, TCFD and the fact that the clients require you to be able to report on the emission. So it's uh, kind of not mandatory, but mandatory. It's actually an interesting story because there are a lot of public companies or countries, if you talk about sovereigns, there is a proper recording from World Bank, which is quite... uh, lagged but uh, still it's comparable using the same methodology then for companies when you're talking about listed companies depending on the size there is a lot of information available so it is surprising how many companies these days are reporting to cdp so the carbon disclosure project is an an initiative put together after the paris agreement in line with uh, the un united nations initiatives in support of what we are going to do with respect to uh, climate change. So uh, a lot of companies are reporting to CDP and the basics that they report is on their scope one and scope two emissions, which is uh, in a kind of uh, interesting way, it's not really difficult to track. Depending on the size of the company, the large companies, they easily report on it. Even they disclose, they try to disclose their scope three emissions, although it's very much estimated and maybe you have a lot of double counting involved there but they try then on the mid caps you see a lot of companies are still reporting and then you get to smaller companies then you see that the information is actually much less so you don't have reportings to cdp that is very much sector dependent as well because uh, i've noticed recently that if you look for companies that are very much exposed to for example climate change whether in a positive or negative point You find a lot of emission data, even on their website or in their CSR, for example, but not the companies that are, for example, a little bit more irrelevant to the climate conversation. So depending on what they do, what sector they are, but then in smaller companies, it's less. Where we found it kind of uh, very interesting is about private sector. So in the private sector, you can consider companies or Even if you're working on the private debt, now I let uh, Rob comment on that because he's uh, the expert. But usually when you request this kind of non-financial information, this comes uh, as uh, a surprise. At the beginning, they're not prepared for it. Uh, They barely have ever thought about it. So you can discuss showing them or trying to actually work with them 
to come up with their emissions, but still, like, seldom we have seen any company in the private scope that had their emission ready at hand to share with you. And then from there, again, it doesn't have to be 100% accurate, but it's comparable. Sarah's points are all amazing and spot on. So she was talking, I was just thinking about what the structure is in order to affect change and capture and think about it from the manager and trying to look and think about it in the context of all of the so-called mandates that are out there, whether it's social um, or governance. Carbon within the environmental mandate is probably the most structured and defined out of all of the open mandates of tracking. The size of companies impacts reporting incredibly. So even with the detailed reporting structures, as you get smaller, it becomes resource intensive and the data and the way that you're going to capture it. And on the private side, we see the LSTA continues to go after the sponsors in a very constructive way. To Sarah's point again is when you come in and give a sponsor, hey, we're trying to capture the following with a company or the company itself, they understand it, but it's brand new to them. And so there's education and it's baby steps. So what does that ultimately mean? It's this duration concept. So your measurement, whether scope one or scope two, it's how are you getting to it? What's the timeline? What's the definitive inputs? So there's a capture mechanism that's pretty much well-defined and a timeline in which that deliverable has to be there. The reporting mechanisms in which the frequency comes back, again, we know where the flaw is there. At best, we're looking at annual reporting mechanisms and an in-between period of more headline reputational risk is the measurement on it. Going forward, realistically, if you think about reporting changing, duration being long dated, it comes to what's the material observable that you're able to report. But more importantly, are you balancing the ability to move forward, move the mandate forward, measure materiality from your seat on the companies, measure materiality from their seat also, are they moving ahead? Or is this just a mandate that looks good on a 30-year time horizon and just can't be implemented? So I think the story is more longer dated, objectives, if you are the change agent, you have to define that with the investors. You're probably one to two to three years ahead of the actual observable change. You're engaging with these companies to help them navigate the going forward, but it can't be captured in the near-term exposure. So what's most important in this area? I think rate of change. So you have to capture it. You have to measure it. You have to measure it at the portfolio, which is another challenge for investment managers. You then have to measure the individual companies, whether you're focused on individual or broader portfolios. I think in carbon, that rate of change is going to be the most important capture mechanism going forward because you're also going to be able to show how you're aligning your book. Are you guys coming under pressure from investors to manage your own firm's carbon footprint? And if so, what are you doing to try and increase the efficiencies there? Going back to our earlier point, we had to look at what we can execute with our resources and will we have a future goal of employing an outside party to measure our overall firm carbon footprint? I think it's the most basic concepts of making sure that you look at what you can achieve. Your footprint in your office is probably the biggest on a day-to-day. How you think about your travel for our group specifically, we are constantly on the road, approved providers. You just have to stop and say, what are the things that you can implement over what timeline? So we had changed our water 
for meetings. We went from bottled water to glasses to things like that. They add up over time, but you also have to be able to implement. And you can't force things on the personnel on the company side. You have to figure out what's attainable. But I think the first part is identifying for us a partner that could come in, measure our carbon footprint as a business, give us, because we are not schooled in this and we know that, so you go to outside parties, give us a roadmap to continue down this road, but also within a context of making sure that within the scope of our firm, we can do it. And I know those are very broad pictures. We are very early days on the carbon side for our firm. So on our side, it's exactly what uh, Rob was mentioning. It's it's quite interesting, actually, how the movement is always towards the first stuff that you can actually come to your mind, and that's the only thing you can do. And you start from there, and you'll see where you get. Questions? Yes. To be honest with you, we had uh, a lot of clients for quite some time asking us, and then it has started a lot coming from our private uh, equity clients. I think the question is extremely more important because an institutional client asking you whether or not this boutique asset manager is calculating their capital footprint is one thing. And then when your private clients start asking you, it's basically even the private companies you invest in, it's usually they're asking you, now that you're asking us to do this, to disclose our emissions, what are you doing about it? And this is, I think, I find it to be a very important and fair question. And I was actually quite happy that uh, they're asking it. We are at the beginning of the road as well. We did it the first time for 2019 to estimate our emissions in all scopes. And then obviously as a financial sector participant, as an asset manager, you can imagine your uh, scope one and two has to do with your uh, buildings and basically what's going on, where is the energy coming from, uh, how much waste do you have? And the majority of your emissions are in your scope three downstream is about your business travels and the emission of your products. So the first thing we can do, and we did it actually exactly like what uh, Rob was saying, is starting from removing all of the cups everywhere, putting glasses everywhere, changing our coffee machine from capsule to back to beans, which was actually revolutionary, putting water fountains and having a centralized garbage place so everyone doesn't have their own small bins for themselves, but you have this centralized place with a lot of different uh, categories and a lot of rules and regulation what goes where so it was quite educational for people at the beginning and you can imagine that at the very beginning it's a little bit upsetting because it's a lot of work just to throw out your garbage <laughs> but we started from there and those were the easy targets the next part is that if you want to really really control your emission as a financial sector participate we knew that we have to address the business travels uh, distance business meetings that is possible through internet because, I mean, all of these uh, great tools are at our disposal. So we don't have to travel and we don't have to travel in groups. Today, you might want to rethink, yeah, do we need five people to go? Can we do only with one and the rest of the people will join with video conference? Then on the other side is the emission of your products in your scope three which is something really important as well, because you cannot say I'm all about climate change, but when it comes to my products, I don't want to touch them. So that's a practice we have been having, I mean, since 2016, actually, to control the emission of the products, and it has become more and more strict uh, throughout time. Now, when I talk about this, it's always more about the liquid part, because, again, on the private side, uh, 
we didn't even have the emission data at some point. Being able to kind of try to reduce it is yet again a different story. So now for a while we have started working on the private side as well, especially with kind of the forward-looking emissions in our vision, at least the scope one and two based on the science-based target initiative. Because you see, there is a lot of expectation that, for example, if you're signing into asset managers net zero initiative, there needs to be a commitment that you're going to actually try something. And I think it's very important, again, going back to what Rob was saying, it's extremely important that we stop for two minutes, maybe instead of actually just summing up some data coming from here and there to think about what we are going to plan going forward. Because if you don't know what's the plan, then you never know how to properly treat the data that you have at hand. In the EU, we have SFDR and regulatory metrics and requirements. Is it a different environment in the US, Rob? Slightly less standardized, I would imagine. It is. And I mean, to put it simply, it's it's more politically based in the US. Your topics are guided by bigger picture thoughts, corporations hitting headlines. And for now, that's where the reality sets of creating these solutions. Again, there are goals, there are targets, there are the accords. We understand that. But there has been, I think, little substantive change in the consistency of data capture. And the way to look at it is just look across the S&P 500. It's the easiest metric in the U.S. to look at. And one of the problems in the U.S. without the data capture, even for the bigger companies, is you use a lot of proxy-based. And in scoring, what that means is it's if-then scenario. Think realistically, though, where this comes down to is not overthinking this in the U.S. It's just a standardization of basic data capture. What has to be covered, that is definitely priority one for the SEC. Everyone's looking at this, but we're just not there yet. For the U.S., the SEC's activity and focus on greenwashing, on focusing on input, is very needed. Where the SEC is going to come in, I, I really do believe, and it's not because it's a white box philosophy, but I talk to my peers in the U.S., the concept of education around ESG will create an engagement with regulatory bodies that doesn't set up this dynamic of product, product, product. This is very complicated and no one wants to get in trouble on this one. Think about the other side. It's a philosophy. If you get in trouble, you know, greenwashing you're doing, it's, it's the antithesis of what ESG is set up for. So the headline risk and the unintended consequences for businesses in the U.S., with the regulatory bodies very focused on this is a very positive sign. I agree with Rob. We have a big issue in U.S., especially that as, as a big portion of majority of the public indices, we have lack of reporting and it is not coming as a top priority, let's say to them, as naturally as it comes in Europe, which is uh, kind of maybe it's justified today because it is actually not put forward as a country purchasing, let's say, an instrument. But in U.S., we find it very difficult when we want to invest with respect to ESG in terms of disclosures. I'm not talking about like these big international companies of U.S. that are everywhere, but uh, the ones that are U.S.-based. In terms of disclosures, we have problems in terms of engagements. There is a mindset that, that is all about profit. 
and it's all about financials and the statistics and returns. And when it comes to the non-financials, it's kind of not even secondary with respect to what you're expecting. And going back to the subject of climate, because I think that is the hottest topic, it is very surprising that you see there are a lot of companies in U.S. that are not, for example, reporting to CDP, because actually CDP asks them to report and they just refuse to report. And you can see it on the website of uh, CDP, which is, uh, again, for U.S. as a leading developed country, it is very surprising. We're getting asked by investors for exclusion now. It's definitely something that you can handle. But some of the exclusion areas, that's where we're the change agent. We're turning companies green. And that's the whole point. You find something going on and whether it's corporate governance, environmental, whether they're there and they need these timelines, but scoring wise, they're going to come in and the observable is, ooh, that doesn't score well. Well, it's no, 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 that's why we're there. We're going to change this company because it has these triggers and it's transformative. So now, again, going back to the earlier point, they're becoming blunt force solutions. So on this topic of engagement versus divestment, it seems to be becoming a bit more of a, a nuanced conversation these days. I mean, do you agree with that or do you think divestment is still winning? And what are your general thoughts on engagement as an ESG tool? I think divestment, it's the part that's most important there is the timeline. So the statement is don't support it, don't add to it. But again, it's under what timeline? So if it's today, I think that that's very dangerous. And I think the headlines that you read about the reason that you're having oil prices spike is you did this transition. That's impossible. People are transitioning to these different areas, renewables, industrial areas. You're seeing it as a whole. It's, it's an investment area. And so whether you're going green or not, all these companies are coming out. It's a natural function and an outcome of this is where the applicable dollar goes anyway. This is a secular change. It's not temporary. It's secular. And you'll always have oil. You need these resources. Just you need it in this abundance. So realistically, the divestiture is a fair point, but over a given timeline with proper due diligence. You can't have a short-term ESG mandate and then expect outcomes that quickly when people have 30-year time horizons. I think a lot of people affect change in the present market in small and mid-cap. I think would also the observation, if you're, and again, this is just listening, if you're bringing these companies along in these conversations, as opposed to jamming them through, I think there is a very different approach. The Chris Hans of the world and TCI, that is a very unique skill. So you have that end of the spectrum, and then you have more of the constructive behind the scenes. Let's do this one company at a time. Let's keep this there and let's affect change. Exclusion is an interesting topic for me because I think it makes sense in some aspects and it doesn't make sense in some other aspects. So, for example, if you're talking about controversial weapons, I don't actually start a conversation with those companies in the hopes that they are going to get better over time. So there, for me, exclusion is the only topic to talk about. So there is no engagement. But uh, the same for me goes, for example, for thermal coal, because we have different resources like oil, gas, thermal coal that are responsible, let's say, all together for uh, the, the GHG emission of the world globally. 
but the worst one is thermal cold. We decided that one needs to stop and the others needs to transition. Now, still, there's a timeline. Even in the discussions, we are talking about up to 2030. No one is expecting any sort of exclusion or change or not actually being exposed to thermal cold uh, as of tomorrow. So the exclusion is a discussion that is very topic-based. Then when it comes to engagement, I think engagement is very important in the sense that, yeah, if you exclude the stuff and just put them aside, it doesn't mean they go away. So if you want to actually have change, just excluding them from your portfolio, someone else will buy them, they get still traded, and the world goes on, you just don't hold them. So if you want to have an actual impact, it means that you need to actually get engaged and talk to people on the other side. Engagement is very tricky, especially that if you just go ask the question, hear a nice answer, and come out of a meeting, nothing probably happens on the back of that because it was just a conversation. Engagement, proper version of engagement, needs actual objectives. You need to know what you're going to address. You need to have some sort of measurable KPIs. You need to have some sort of timeline in your uh, mind, because if you're talking to an energy company, you cannot tell them, I want you to reduce your emission, and I want it by the end of the week. You need to think about, I'm looking at you in next three to five years time periods and I'm monitoring the gradual reduction or the transition to, let's say, a greener energy source. So it's a long-term conversation, especially when you're talking about very, very complicated material. So if it's about your company doesn't have a whistleblower policy, that's easy. You can expect to have that in the matter of a couple of months. But if you're talking about changing your business model, it's a long-term project. But I think proper engagement needs to have a proper objective, a proper KPI for the expectation you have. So what you're trying to achieve with that engagement. And then eventually, you need to always have an end-line thinking that what am I going to do if nothing happens? So not that uh, it's going to be useful for anyone on the other side of your table, but it's very useful for you to know what you want to get out of this engagement. Because if your expectation is that I go engage, if nothing happens, we will engage again. So that's one strategy. Then you can do that three times. Then, But after that, what? So I think there is a proper methodology. There needs to be actually some sort of agreement between people you're engaging with. But on the other side, engagement is not something that I believe uh, one institution or 10 institutions can go have a discussion and make happen. If you're asking a very big international company to change their ways, whether it's environmentally, socially, or governance-wise, you need a lot of people to knock on their door. So does it feel like portfolios or products with a reduction of carbon emission target or objective really need to be long-term portfolio strategies like somebody can't come in for a year and hope to make a change well it depends because to be honest with you if you want to make a low carbon portfolio today you can you just don't invest in energy then if you want to kind of think about a climate transition kind of portfolio it's not about low carbon because i think there is a massive confusion out there what is low carbon and what is climate transition low carbon is a like low emission portfolio you invest mainly in sectors that are not high emission whereas a climate transition you focus on those 
sectors that are actually in trouble with respect to emission, try to pinpoint who you can support because they are going to make it to the end of this line over the long term in 10 years, in 20 years, faster than the rest. I think that's probably one of the challenges for people that don't have resources to at least hear the way you guys approach scoring and taking it in yourselves? Yes. So basically, the idea was we were looking at different data providers, and we actually went through many, and we were holding at a time multiple uh, of data providers when it came to ESG. And you see you have this... Uh, kind of not feeling comfortable about this portion of the data when you're looking at it and one says something, the other says something else. So we did a kind of digging uh, for, I think, uh, now for a couple of years, actually. And we keep digging now into data because, I mean, what comes as a finalized data, which is already modeled, you might not understand from it what the one that modeled it together actually intended to say. So the idea is that we decided that, okay, we want to get to the roots of understanding how this comes together. So what we do is graph the indicators from the different data providers. So what gives us all of these information about the environmental aspect, social aspect, governance aspects, and basically try to assemble them together such that it feels, let's say, our way of managing portfolios. So it fits our view. It doesn't necessarily say that it's better than anyone else's. It's just about the fact that we take comfort about what we know and we try to actually kind of allocate less to what uh, we don't trust or don't know or do not have high quality. So, for example, when it comes to ESG, we are kind of more confident in the information that we get from the environmental and some majority of environmental. So it comes to emission, the waste or water uh, kind of intensity, if you're talking about the portion of uh, energy consumption of companies, if it's uh, renewable, non-renewable, and so on and so forth, the involvement in different kind of topics like oil, gas, thermal coal, and so on and so forth. We have a lot of confidence about this data because what we have done is connect with many companies and try to verify that what we receive from the data provider whose sites very valid points behind it is actually true, valid, and close to reality. And we found social data to be a little bit less better quality because majority of the companies, they do not disclose a lot of their social indicators. We went through a lot of social indicators, found a lot of them being just estimations or sector level views, not really reported by the company. And for example, we decided, okay, in our implementation of ESG, we are going to give less weight to social aspect and more weight to uh, governance and environmental aspects simply because of the quality of the information that we have. I mean, that just summed up how complicated this could get. And so that methodology is amazing, but going to where we started, you also have to remember the seat that you're in. We don't have the time or the resources and it's ever evolving. And it's, again, it's thoughtfulness to what you're trying to implement and where Sarah is. I think is well ahead of most of us on gathering the scores, understanding what those inputs are. But again, there are service providers without naming them. We all know the same ones. They're all out there. There are new one, new entrants coming in every day. It is one of the weaknesses of the industry without standardizing this. You're only as good as 
what you're able to do and get to your investors. If I can add something else as what Rob is saying is actually very important and it's important for all of us as well, because if you look at it from the financial sector perspective, our job is not actually grabbing data and try to clean it. Our job supposed to be, we are provided with reliable data. We use it to address the point. I get scared sometimes when I hear that People try to tell you that our methodology is better because there is not a better or worse version of ESG. In reality, if there is a set of environmental, social and governance indicators that are important for a company in any sector, you should just simply be able to average them and look at it as the average ESG score of the company. We are expecting those information to come from the companies, you should not really need someone to stand between and try to say, I do it better. It's extremely important that we have a standard methodology across the board. So we stop actually talking about which ESG is better or which one is worse. There is no better or worse ESG. If a company is environmentally bad, it should not be bad somewhere and good somewhere else. It is just bad. So let's stay at that point because that's the part that I've been harping on for a long time. It's great to get scores. It's great to say you've been trained on SASB materiality. I, I keep hearing these things. And it, they're, they're very commercial. They sound very intelligent. They, they're amazing. I don't know about everyone else's experience, but we're going through in our credit book, we're trying to map individual positions to SASB materiality in their sectors, which SASB does a great job of narrowing it down to key inputs. It's nowhere near a perfect fit. The framework, I understand, but an analyst to think about how that works in their terms versus the SASB model, it's going to take time. So if reporting's better, we're going to download reporting. We're going to map it to SASB materiality. So we're capturing it. Well, no, you're just mapping ESG. That doesn't mean it was material to your investment thesis. And I think where you're going to have to demonstrate going forward is the materiality of your analysts in fundamental strategies to show what your observables were, whether it was one factor, two factors, 12 factors, it's where the pitfall comes, where people are going to claim materiality and they're going to be asked to publish their report and show analyst notes because the investor can ask for it. This idea of measurement, materiality, all of it will be the next challenge for the firms that are doing this on a fundamental scale. And so this is one where I think this is the pitfall. This is where I think managers will get in trouble. But at the same time, this is really resource intensive to sit with individual positions, change a mindset of how to explain and even identify whether if we topically think something is ESG. So let's move on to the end point, I guess, in a lot of these processes, which is the reporting to investors. What are the requests in terms of frequency data that people are looking for? And, and what are the challenges? For us, even though we have it available on a monthly the resource constraints at the allocator we have found is the balance is quarterly. It definitely has to, we've evolved our reporting. So we have our scores, we have our sectors, we have our carbon for the portfolio. What our investors really want is a, the philosophy now everyone should have it, right? You have to have it at a management company and, and your portfolio level. That's a standard. But when it comes to the data, because again, it's another non-standardized gathering point, you just have to make sure that you're providing the information, the rate of change, consistent sectors, 
and then have the ability to dig down should they need to do it. We haven't seen a need to dig into reputational risk. Right now, it's just a gathering exercise from our side and an engagement to understand how that works with our portfolio. And if you look at some of the portfolios across the industry, the actual change from quarter over quarter isn't massive. So again, if you really think about reporting, it's sector-based, right? It's not, unless you have a concentrated equity portfolio, it's mostly sector-based. And so you would have to have a big sector change in order to have an ESG score at the top level change. And that's, that's where we see, you know, okay, I think in 2022, you will have a very difficult time, uh, especially in the back half of 22, engaging not only your existing investors, but new investors, if you don't have a report that's published, that's consistent on at least a quarterly basis. Well, on our side, the expectation is actually uh, lots of time is on a monthly basis. And we are providing monthly kind of ESG reports to everyone. But one should think about the fact that if we are saying that the ESG information, what builds an ESG score in reality is coming based on the annual reporting of the companies, it is actually kind of updated on annual basis. So it does not really change. Now in our case for us, because we put our ESG score together ourselves, one of the things that is different is that the only thing that can make an impact on an ESG score is kind of uh, the events, the controversial events that can happen, and those events, whether it happens at the company level or a sovereign level, they come out on a daily basis. If there is something big, you hear about it in the news, it's written in the newspaper, or you see basically uh, material movings, or let's assume a company for a couple of, let's say, weeks is postponing their earnings, so you know something is coming up. So these kind of signals are way shorter claim. We are asked to provide monthly or quarterly, which is uh, completely fine. On the private side, it's a little bit more difficult because there you don't really have those controversies. Seldom you see stuff in the news or someone is actually going to court for whatever reason that uh, there is a wrongdoing. So in the private scope, we have maintained an annual reporting, which makes uh, total sense, especially that you have to imagine the hassle a private uh, organization has to go through to actually estimate majority of these. You, we can come to a common understanding that there are certain metrics that is not really important to follow on quarter-on-quarter quarter basis, like emissions or, for example, the percentage of female and male in the board or the company. But what is kind of important to follow maybe is uh, the evolution of your engagement, if it's part of your report. For us, it's part of our ESG report. So what happened during the quarter? Did we actually engage with someone new or where we are in the previous engagement we had? So this kind of information you can update on a frequent basis unless you are at the size or in a situation that you have a data team who can actually automate this kind of information for a person to do this or even at the qualitative inputs on a quarterly basis, it's a lot of work. I think what is very important is, and this is from bottom of my heart that I really want to put out there to whoever is listening to this podcast, we have a lot of meetings and discussions and panels commiserating the fact that this is difficult. 
and everyone knows it's difficult. But then on the other side, we all acknowledge that this is necessary as well. So although it's difficult, there are always some ways that you can do something. So I think one of the good things is that if we have to disclose, we don't have everything to disclose, but we can disclose a little bit. Let's disclose it. If we have to report, let's report what we can. And then there is always the possibility of explaining, how did I do this? And people will understand, but sitting and just thinking about the fact that it is very difficult is not going to actually help us move uh, further on. And then just to finish up, maybe a final thought from each of you around any of the topics we've spoken today, carbon, data, reporting, engagement. I am going to give SBAI a little plug here because... I listen as much as I can. I'm surrounded by much smarter people in my day to day. And so in joining the ESG working committee, my first inclination is I've been trained for 20 years. Do not share a thing. I have a competitive edge. I listened to the first working committee and I went through that, that round table and I really didn't say a word at all. Literally. That's the exact opposite of the whole concept of ESG. And that started me on the path as to what realistically ESG is. And what I came to the conclusion was, if we bring our peers in, if we bring in the investors and you just try and gather as much information together and work together, you can move this forward. But what's interesting is it also taught me in these groups, you have to get people that either are competitors, your competitors around the table to hear the challenges and the successes and have an open and transparent discussion. You're going to learn from them. They're going to learn from you. And then the investor community, who is, in my eyes, a second derivative, they're, they're trying their best. They're stuck between the investment manager, the company's reporting, and then they have their own philosophy of implementation. And so when you get all those parties together, you wind up with a lot of solutions, but you also wind up with identifying the needs going forward to avoid unintended consequences of near-term solutions for long-term, really sustainable implementation. And so from our seat, can agree more that it's going to be a group of people engaging over time that will get this done. And then the regulators have to do their job here and help us to just standardize the reporting. If I may add one last point uh, here, I think it's quite interesting to take a look at what's happening in Europe. I know there are some regulations in Canada as well, but the new European regulation, what came as sustainable finance disclosure regulation, the principal adverse impact, the indicators that are a set of common indicators for everyone to say from here on, I report on them. They include all environmental, social, uh, and governance indicators. I'm not saying it's all-inclusive. I'm not saying it's uh, kind of enough. It can be a starting point for whoever is lost and they don't know what to look at. So they can take a look at this and wherever they are, then try to expand on it however they want. Some great points to end on there, I think. So thank you both very much for taking the time to do this today and um, sharing your perspectives. Carbon is certainly a complex topic, and it seems it will be a while before our work on this is perfect. But as our discussion today showed, working together we can definitely find a way to move this forward. My thanks to Sarah Razenpar from Unigestion and Rob Sachs from Whitebox Advisors for this in-depth and thought-provoking discussion. 
We will be hosting more of these conversations, so please do subscribe to keep up to date. For more information on our work in responsible investment, including the conversations we are currently having on carbon, as well as our many other working group topics, why not head over to sbai.org or contact us at info at sbai.org. Until next time, take care.